You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. The summer of 2021 and 2022 has seen a new wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, mass illness and death in an environment of woeful state responses and complacency. This week, we hear about the concept of disability justice, which foregrounds a very different world where people at the margins are centered. Later in the program, we also hear about the Omicron summer crisis and how the left should respond. First, we hear from Julia Rosebach, who is a queer Maori Polish writer, abolitionist and organizer based in Nam. They talk about the concept of disability justice. This interview aired on Radio ANA on 3CR with Annalise and Ani. My name is Julia. I use they, them pronouns, and I am um, here broadcasting, speaking from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I arrived at disability justice, I think, through a couple of things. As a child growing up with disability and not really knowing how I fit into this kind of typical image of a disabled person, this like a disabled person archetype that exists and yeah, not really feeling comfortable engaging with the disability community because in my mind, from what I was exposed to, it was primarily people with like mobility disabilities who were significantly older than me. And so I was like, there's no room for me there. But then also as an adult, engaging with the queer community and finding a lot of love and kinship there, but there always being this kind of undercurrent of ableism throughout many of the spaces that I frequented. And, yeah, disability justice, it just kind of naturally fit that I would arrive at this this thing that kind of encapsulated exactly what I needed, which was something for people who don't feel disabled enough to be part of the disability rights movement, but also like too disabled to be a part of like the queer community or various other communities. So yeah, what is disability justice? I've written about disability justice a few times for a few different articles and I've spoken about it in conversation with a few different people. And I always kind of struggle with the the very basic way of defining it because I think the people who created the term they phrased it as a developing framework that some call a movement and I think that's a really interesting and kind of apt way of putting it because it's it's a series of principles that is kind of slowly emerging into a movement across predominantly Turtle Island, but also so-called Australia um, and I'm sure many other countries. But 
I, I think I find it quite hard to decide whether it's a series of principles, a framework or a movement. So I guess to me it's it's all of those things in in various ways. It came about in response to two things, one of, one of which was the disability rights movement across Turtle Island, which was uh, predominantly led by white people and by people whose disability was very much to do with mobility and the disability rights movement had this quite narrow focus on disability as a single issue identity and didn't take into consideration intersections of race, age, gender, sexuality. And then secondarily, there were these queer, disabled people of colour across Turtle Island who were part of other progressive, radical social justice spaces who recognised that ableism was really prevalent in those um, communities that they were frequenting. And so similarly to me, um, in how I arrived at disability justice, they found that they were in this kind of middle space of um, the disability rights movement not being not being intersectional, not not considering the fact that some people don't want to enhance their standing in this kind of rights-based system. And then also, yeah, being a part of all of these other communities and having these other um, intersecting axes of oppression that wasn't really honouring the the way in which disability intersected with those either. So, yeah, that group of people founded the Disability Justice Collective um, and with that the 10 principles of disability justice with, I guess, like the main, the main point being that it, it would be a framework or a movement where disabled people of colour and queer and gender non-conforming disabled people would always be at the forefront and would always be leading the movement and, and leading the direction that it would be going in. Before we continue and we do want to ask you a bit about the principles of disability justice, you said before this word ableism and I'm wondering what your meaning of it is when you say that word. Yeah, so I guess the way that I think of it is this hierarchy that exists that places able-bodied and uh, neurotypical uh, people without disability, people without um, mental illness or neurodivergency at the top of the hierarchy and anybody else with a body or a mind that deviates from that expectation at the bottom and being kept at the bottom, you're subject to violence and uh, discrimination, often increased rates of interpersonal violence and displacement in the form of housing and and all sorts of things. It it comes with so many um, systemic and institutional consequences to be at the bottom of this able-bodied 
supremacy hierarchy. And so, yeah, when I'm talking about ableism, I guess I mean anything that, yeah, any kind of action that contributes to keeping disabled people at the bottom of that hierarchy that exists. Thanks for sharing that meaning. I feel like, you know, people say these words in a whole lot of different contexts and actually to hear, you know, that sort of description and, you know, around these hierarchies and structures and things that contribute to that. It's really interesting. You were describing before that um, there is 10 principles of disability justice and I wondered if you could share those with us and, and maybe some of what they mean to you. The 10 principles of disability justice, the first one is intersectionality and a lot of the um, the way in which the disability justice principles and the framework was developed was very heavily influenced by Audre Lorde and so intersectionality is placed at the top um, as the first principle with the quote, we do not live single issue lives. Um, and then leadership of those most impacted is the second principle, anti-capitalist politic, commitment to cross-movement organising, recognising wholeness, sustainability, commitment to cross-disability, solidarity, interdependence, collective access and collective liberation. Are there any of those principles that have really stood out for you or are really important for you or all of them in the work that you do? Yeah, I find that kind of depending on the day, there'll be one or maybe two that jump out to me a little bit more than the others or that feel particularly relevant to something, some circumstance in my life. I I think at the moment one that I've been focusing on quite a bit is this idea of recognising wholeness and recognising the inherent worth of uh, people's minds and bodies regardless of any ways in which they might deviate from societal expectations or norms or anything like this and recognising people as whole people irrespective of their ability to contribute to capitalism and to be productive and to be commodified. You just heard from Julia Rosebach, who is a queer Maori, Polish writer, abolitionist and organiser based in Nam. You can find more of that interview by searching for Radio ANA and 3CR in your search engine. Julia is one member of the Disability Justice Network who collectively raised money for an ongoing mutual aid fund which you can find by putting Disability Justice Network Mutual Aid Fund in your search engine. I'll also provide links in the show notes. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Next, we hear from Polly, a queer non-binary academic and consultancy researcher. We talk about the summer Omicron crisis and how the left should respond. There's been a big summer and notwithstanding the protective benefits of mass vaccination, which the overdeveloped imperial core like 
countries like Australia have hoarded the vaccines, there has been a lot going on. Um, what has stood out for you and do you see it as a summer of state abandonment? Yeah, well, well, there's kind of two. <laughs> it's two questions in that question, isn't there? Um, yeah, I think it's been, well, what stood out for me who... Um, resided in, on Boonarong country in so-called Melbourne for a lot of the lockdowns um, and then I escaped to um, Wadarong country during lockdown six because it was just getting a bit much for me. Um, but what stood out, I think, mainly for me and anyone who else who lives in Melbourne is just the complete turnaround, like not quite 180 degree, but it feels like quite a um, sharp turnaround in terms of government policy, um, at least in Victoria and particularly Melbourne, um, from such an intense lockdown, um, which I was even critical of. I was crit critical particularly of the elements that forced severe isolation on whole groups of people, particularly those in aged care and uh, with disability in, in any kind of group home and those who lived alone uh, or parents who are single parents living with children, so not living with any other adult company. The lockdowns were incredibly severe and unnecessarily so. Um, it's not like... <laughs> we as individuals with the virus, even though we were being treated like we were. And then with Omicron arriving last year and all the best epidemiologists, including Mary Louise McClaws, who I follow quite closely, um, in based in Sydney and who's also a WHO representative, um, she'd been warning for quite a while that Omicron is not mild, um, that COVID, at least as in its current form, will never become endemic, which was the language that was being used, and that uh, a third vaccine shot is minimum now. So it shouldn't even be called a booster because it's not a booster, it's an essential vaccine, and that those who receive the AstraZeneca vaccination, which are all those over 60 and anyone in the high-risk groups like myself, should receive as a minimum a third shot, and some are now receiving a fourth shot. And yet at the federal level, there was just so little commitment, as has been the case throughout the pandemic, to getting people properly vaccinated, whether internationally or here in so-called Australia. Um, and, you know, the easing of restrictions to the level of taking off masks. I mean, it was only back in October we were all taking, well, not we. <laughs> the government was advising everyone to take masks off and numbers restrictions on numbers were lifted and like even very basic <laughs> virus control measures were being abolished very quickly way too quickly and um, for me myself what really stood out as well is that um, now living in Geelong um, Geelong and the tourist areas of the surf coast weren't ready weren't ready for the influx of um, people infected with Omicron and 
we, like New South Wales, um, had ridiculously long queues to get testing before Christmas um, because it was already here. And just a complete absence of any kind of practice in public health measures because we, we only had two weeks of lockdown during that whole lockdown six period that Melbourne was in. So just not prepared for a sudden influx. Um, and some of our pathologies, which are privatised as well, including site for the now infamous pathology that bungled so many of the tests and also had to just dump a whole bunch of tests because after five to seven days, they're, they're useless. You can't test them anymore. Anyway, so, yeah, the thing that's real, well, I mean, I guess it's it's similar to so many other people is that particular communities, and by communities I include groups of people, for example, people with disability, people in high-risk groups in terms of COVID, people in any kind of um, supported accommodation or group home or aged care, those communities were very were not prepared for Omicron. And I also mean particular regional and geographic areas as well. So whole areas of New South Wales, all of the tourist areas in across the country who are often in regional areas and had just not seen COVID and so weren't prepared with proper public health measures. So... Um, that's a very long answer to <laughs> very yeah. um, big two questions. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. And a few things in what you said. It seems like there's been a false dichotomy constructed between the sort of stay-at-home restrictions that has aspects that uh, that can, you can be quite critical of because it's very police-led. Yeah. And certain measures are just don't make sense and can have really negative impacts on groups of people and yeah, dichotomy between that and doing very little like a vaccine, largely a vaccine only strategy. And, and the other thing I was thinking in, in what you said is who's have to, who's had to bear the cost, like what communities have had to, like the state has left dealing with the pandemic onto individuals and communities. Yeah. And it's really been a crisis of care and labor Women on the line. I think there's also been a dichotomy created between those who are high risk and the community. And the real problem with that is that people with high mm. risk are part of the community. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we interact with people every day. Um, I have a very close relationship with my niece and generally see her in normal times would see her at least once a week but while she's not vaccinated I have to be extra careful and the same as my parents who are my niece's grandparents. So picking up some of what you said around the false dichotomy between uh, high people in the community who are high risk and supposedly the community um, there seems to be a bit more complacency in the left compared to earlier in the pandemic when there was like talk of mutual aid 
and people new to concepts such as disability justice were considering those principles. Mm. What do you think should the left's response be, especially in this environment of the rise of reaction and the far right? And we also recently saw the nurses striking. I think so much needs to be done. Um, I think definitely we need to support any of the unions organising, whether that's nurses or workers covered by the UWU and warehouses and food distribution or, um, yeah, wherever it is, we need to absolutely support those forms of organising. To be honest, well, I think it's worth reflecting on how we got to this point and what some of the shifts are. And to be honest, I think there's a problem with whole sections of the left dropping mutual aid when the at least the Victorian state government did put in place a lot of supports. And while I think we need state support and so we should always fight for it, I don't think we should ever let um, labour organising or care systems of care to be handed, like have control over those ever handed over to the state. So... I think we should be looking for ways to put pressure on the state to help fund and resource what we need Um, and in all the variety of ways that we need it, whether it's for disabled folk or um, people in some form of supported accommodation or um, group homes or whatever or people living alone. we should absolutely always fight for funding and resourcing. We should never let go of control because control over our health and our lives should be <laughs> at the at the person level, at the patient, consumer, client, whatever, whatever name we give it level. Um, because and and worker level, because we know what's needed. Um, So I think that part of the reason why the mutual aid systems kind of fell down is because some sections of the left have, to me, quite an uncritical trust in the state um, and are like, oh, yay, the state government's helping us. We don't need to do anything now. And meanwhile, there were groups, as we know, like in public housing estates and... um, refugee communities and there were whole sections of communities who were completely abandoned. Um, Some disabled folk living in group homes were literally locked into rooms um, because there weren't enough carers and support workers um, around to be able to manage their normal work overload, which should never be normal, as well as additional safety measures. Um, So, yeah, um, I guess if I was going to sum that up into a few points, I think um, always fight for (laughs) state funding and resources to support our our lives, but never hand over control. Um, We should have local committees and, like, those mutual aid groups should be part of working out how some of that state funding is distributed and um, to make sure that the people who need it actually get it. I mean, not dissimilar to how 
the groups that sprung up around the public housing estates in Flemington and Kensington occurred. So they didn't say no to state funding. They said, sure, give us funding, but we're distributing it because we know what's necessary. So <laughs> get, your, get your state bureaucrats out of our homes and <laughs> hand over the money so that we can distribute it fairly and properly. Um and yeah, so and no, it's definitely no to policing. In terms of um, the context of the so-called freedom protests, um, which are clearly <laughs> it's like a misappropriation of the word freedom, but anyway, um, some of their, I mean, I'm for the right to protest. So some of, and I have been throughout the pandemic, um, I think some sections of the left supporting bans on protests was really dangerous. And I think we're seeing some of the consequences of it now, both over-reliance in the state on one hand and people going completely the other way and basically not giving a shit about anyone. <laughs> Um, and protesting, even wearing masks, even though they have no health reason to not wear one. So, um, some of their some of their demands, I think, could be addressed um, through different means, as in, um, I don't know, education, um, a less state enforced. Um, form of vaccination so it's workplace led or um, community led rather than um, top down um, in terms of vaccinations like the workplaces where they had workplace discussions that were led by unions and there were heavily unionized workplaces and it was through that that they agreed at the workplace level to have a vaccine mandate for the safety of the whole workplace those workplaces seem to have done a lot better than other ones where there's just been a heavy top-down approach and no additional funding for workers to enforce vaccine mandates, for example, in hospitality. So other countries have actually state-funded positions or provided additional funding to workplaces. You just heard from Polly, a queer, non-binary academic and consultancy researcher speaking on how the left should respond to the latest wave in the pandemic. That's all for this week. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program, so please send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Iris Lee. Tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.